Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals. (laughs) 
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Paddington 2 is over. I may look like a hardened criminal, but I'm innocent. So that was my Ben Wishaw. That's that okay. No, that's I don't even know what that was. I hate you. I hate you right now. You had one thing to say, and you you couldn't even muster that. <laughs> this pop-up book. Where on earth did you find it, Mr. Gruber's antique shop? Stop! Freeze! <laughs> Hold it right there. But I'm not the thief. Mysterious things have been happening all over town. We're rich again. I may look like a hardened criminal, but I'm innocent. We're going to need a foolproof plan. If anyone can recognize a criminal, it's us. He's a master of disguise. Oh. This is breaking an entering. I haven't broken anything. Where do you think you're going, Bear? Paddington wouldn't hesitate if any of us needed help. He looks for the good in all of us. Marmalade? Take a seat. Come on, Wolfie. Ow. Paddington 2, Andy. This is, uh, we started last week with our giant Paddington epic series. And we are finishing this week <laughs> with the finale of our giant Paddington epic franchise. <laughs> this, yeah. If we were doing the books, this series would be much longer. <laughs> there are it, it, yes, it a would. A lot of books. But no. Yes, it We would. are simply doing the two films. The two Paddington films. The delightful Paul King Paddington films. Makes you think that Paul King knows how to make a, a kid's movie. He knows how to put a film together. He sure does. Um, so we are, once again, we are uh, we have embarked on our uh, franchise, Year of Franchises, and uh, this is a part of it. Um, and uh, I think we both come into this movie with a lot of earned interest from last week. We, of course, have both seen the, the both of these movies before. This is not new to us. Um, and, uh, so we are talking about Paddington. It is a simple story of a bear eager to buy a present for his aunt. what do you think? I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Uh, but again, coming into this film as a person who really had not done much Paddington reading as a kid, I, I knew who the character was and stuff, but it wasn't like, I wasn't like obsessed with Paddington and you never had Paddington pictures on my walls as kids. Like I was not a, a Paddington person. I, it was really these films became the Paddington story for me. And so the first film I really enjoyed. So yes, I was very much looking forward to a second one to see what they could do with it. And, you know, I, you know, I have kids who are the right age. And so uh, it was definitely something we went to and uh, it's just an easy, easy, easy film to fall in love with. So Paddington too. Um, okay. Well, that's easy enough. I, we also did not see this film in the theater, just like the last one, uh, saw this at home and everybody loved it. Even my kids who themselves are hardened criminals, they, they found it delightful. Uh, my wife did not go to sleep during this movie, which is a pretty regular thing for movie night. 
uh, around these parts. So uh, <laughs> that that sets the bar. Paddington 2 is a non-sleeper. There you go. Well, Paddington 2 was rated PG when it came out for some action and mild, rude humor. Mild, rude humor. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Andy, the story of Paddington 2, it's actually a story. Uh, It has, it's not just like getting to know the bear, um, which I I think you could make the the case that we had to have the origin story of the bear in the last movie. And there are many capers that are related to getting to know the bear. Uh, In this movie, there is a very simple premise. The bear wants to buy a present for his aunt. And along the way, there are many uh, hijinks, hijinks and shenanigans ensue. And I find those delightful. The one question, the first question I have for you is, is there a line on the sort of of humor in this movie that you, that makes you that that ever it ever crosses and makes you say, eh, I don't like it. Is there ever a scene like that? And I'm thinking specifically of the uh, toothbrush ear nose humor that we which was a follow up to the toothbrush nose ear humor in the last movie. I believe it was just toothbrush, toothbrush ear. There was no nose last time. Toothbrush ear in the last movie. And it wasn't mechanical. Uh, it wasn't uh, motorized toothbrush uh, in the last movie. I this think they movie, call them electric toothbrushes. Motor, I mean, it's hey, motors, steampunk, motorized. steampunk motor. He has to crank them <laughs> to get them going. He jams them in his ears. Like the ladder? And then his nose. <laughs> and then his nose. Yes, that's a steampunk ladder. And uh, then his teeth. And so we have uh, we have a sequence where is that? It does that. It, if if there is a scene of humor in this movie, does it does that one push it over the edge for you? No, not at all. All right, it's totally fine, and it's just it's taking what we had in the first one and just giving and just boosting it a tiny bit. The first one, he cleans his ears with the toothbrushes, and then he passes the bathroom later and sees Mister Brown brushing his teeth, and Mister Brown is like, "Huh, what's up with this toothpaste? It's something's funny about it." And then Paddington walks by and says, "Oh, you're using the ear cleaners for your teeth." Well, that's interesting, or something like that, uh, which is, you know, it's good humor. And then here we have the same thing, He's but he's now got the electric toothbrushes, he's cleaning his ears, and then his nose, and then his teeth with it. And so it's just taking what we already had and amping it up just a tiny bit. And it's all of, like, five seconds. Like, there's hardly any yeah. time spent on the film. Doesn't bug me in the slightest. It's, it is fine. This is exactly the sort of just gentle body humor that you get in in a kid's movie like this, and it works well. Totally. Absolutely. Uh, I agree with you. So what stands out in this movie for you that it, that makes it exciting to talk about? The scope of the story has uh, expanded. We talk about the whole thing with Aunt Lucy, and, you know, we get a little more of Paddington's backstory as far as how Aunt Lucy and Uncle Pastuso came upon him and rescued him from, uh, you know, we should just clarify the 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 film uh the jungle scenes in the first film were all filmed in Costa Rica the waterfall scenes in this one were filmed at Iguazu Falls which borders Argentina and Brazil none of which is Peru just to clarify but yeah. it supposedly is a waterfall in Peru they rescue him and a young Paddington is now uh, you know he devotes his life to um sending letters to his aunt back at the home for uh home for aged bears i can't remember what it's called <laughs> Uh, down in Peru and uh, and wants to 
send her a very special birthday present. So the concept of this about family, and this is very much these stories are about family, Paddington trying to find a family, people who uh, he can um, who care for him and and he cares for them. And it's it's kind of expanded on not just the family of him and the Browns, but really it's like this neighborhood and this friend, the friendship that is developed between him and all these different people and how he's affected all their lives. Um, and and it expands to that, like what once he goes to prison. And so you really get a sense of this bear and how he um, evolves, um, uh, kind of takes people and finds the best of what they have. And Mr. Brown has that great speech about him when they are racing to go help him. And, um, and, and it's, so, I mean, it's, that's exactly why this film is good because it focuses on that friendship and how he finds the best in everybody, even if it's the smallest little piece inside he finds it and really grows that and nurtures it. And and that's what I love so much about him. And he's so gentle and and um, just kind-hearted. And so everybody kind of ends up getting behind him in this quest to find this pop-up book that, that he was raising money for, trying to buy to send to his Aunt Lucy so that she could see London. And so you get this beautiful story about this character who is, and, and we talked about this last time about, he is a character whose character arc doesn't, he doesn't have this big character arc. He's not trying to um, to grow and, and stuff. He really is the same character from the beginning to the end. It's just how he changes others and how they evolve and their characters change with him and because of him over the course of the film. And so it really expands on that. And you see him affecting so many more people in this. And so that's, that's I think, one of the key parts of the story. And then also the villain. I think the villain of the story has gone so much beyond what they ever did with the first one. And I love yeah. the stuff that Nicole Kidman's doing in the first one, but holy cow, Hugh Grant is operating on a completely different level here in one of uh, just the best things he's ever done. I think he's actually said this is his favorite uh, film that he's actually done in all the films that he's done. And so uh, it's, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I think there's awesome. a lot to love in this in this film. And we should just mention the unbearable weight of massive talent. This film is the film that Nicolas Cage and uh, his buddy are bonding over. And I think that's great. Um, so I, I think you're absolutely right, um, particularly about this. The, just thematically, the whole angle of kindness and, and all of the other characters that, that are changing around him, um, you know, speaks to like the degree to which someone is an evildoer is the degree to which they are impermeable to, um, to others' influence by dint of ego, right? And that's, that's Hugh Grant. He's so inside of himself. And, uh, you know, as a, as an actor who now does dog food commercials, that he is unable to make connections with anyone. And as a result, Paddington has no influence on him. And I really like that, that angle. And and we have that this wonderful sequence where they are, um, where he's introducing Hugh Grant is introducing this carnival, this festival, and he brings Paddington up on stage and Paddington through just innocence ends up making kind of a <laughs> buffoon of him. <laughs> he says, well, the man's got to eat, you eat dog food, then. <laughs> I mean, it's just such an innocent set of questions and retorts that are not meant, you know, as uh, malicious barbs. They are just meant as curiosities. And I, I, you know, to my read of it, and I think as a result makes um, makes Grant look like a fool. And that is he is immovable. 
from that experience, Hugh Grant. He's just, he's learned a thing about this pop-up book and he now has to, that that becomes his mission too. It's such a simple conceit. Uh, I really, really like it. I want to go back to the, your origin story that you opened with the rescue uh, over the falls because I think it's a good opportunity to talk about the CG of the bears. Do you notice any change in the, uh, between the two movies uh, in, in what they're going for with the bears? I have this experience right watching the movie of uh aunt lucy over the edge and her face fills the um fills the frame as she's reaching down and grabbing him and i'm i am struck by you know that uncanny valley sort of photorealistic bear uh and i want to know what your opinion is on on their strategy here i mean it was it was a three-year period of time from the first to the second film I mean, obviously, there is going to be CG improvement as far as like, because hair is notoriously kind of a tricky thing that they've been improving constantly and what they do with hair and and how they really make it kind of look so photorealistic. And, you know, just a couple years before this, right between these two films, The Revenant came out and obviously there is an amazing, very realistic bear in that film that I completely bought. Mm-hmm. And I think that in, you know, in both of the Paddington films, they've had to take the balance of, we don't want that. <laughs> you know, we don't want a revenant bear running around in the streets of London. Mm-hmm. We don't necessarily want the cartoon bear that we have in the Paddington books, or even like the animated shows, things like that. We need to create kind of a, a blend of the two. So he's a very kind of cuddly little bear, but still, looks like it's an actual thing that's in the space. And I don't know if I could pinpoint a specific difference, I guess, is the thing, is between 2014 and 2017, I don't think I noticed really a difference between the bears uh, and the evolution of the CG. I just think it all looks believable. I think you make a really good point. Like, like they're not they're not not like the revenant or let's say the jungle book uh remake or or not the jungle book uh, the the live action um, jungle book ah shabanya konnichiwa um the Lion the, King that Favreau did the Lion King where they're they're trying to like you can tell in those sequences they're trying to trick me they're trying to make me think that that's a real animal who can talk um and this and and the bear and the revenant that's a they're trying to trick me right they want me to believe that that's a real a real bear and that's great but this one is interesting because um, because I don't think they're they're trying to their first initiative isn't to trick me that this is a real bear. Their first initiative is here's a bear that has to be able to wear glasses and fit in London without anybody batting an eye because that's the fantastical universe in service of the fantastical universe. Um, and then we can make these, you know, these um uh, the demands of the character to actually interact. And I think, you know, for me. I I like to to think about the hard stare sequence because we have two of those one of or one in each movie and to look at them side by side I think the hard stare in this movie um is weirdly more human like it has more human sort of musculature you can tell that they have they've evolved this comic face of this bear it is a close up. It is eye- glistening in the eyes. It is, uh, and and I just think it it looks like an evolution. I'm with you. Most of the movie, I don't notice any any difference unless I'm like frame by frame, kind of um, peeking at it. Uh, but and, and I don't think they were trying to do as much standout 
like get my attention with the fur work that they were in the first movie. We actually have a sequence where they change the fur with the hairdryer and all the stuff. Uh, there, there wasn't any of that. This was much more about character and not showing off what they've been able to accomplish. But the the humanization of the of the face in that hard stare was really cool uh, to my eye. So uh, I love the bears. Let's see. I don't remember where I was going to go from there. Oh, kindness. The whole theme of kindness that you brought up earlier, I think is it, it, this whole movie makes me feel the way that sequence and everything everywhere all at once when the dad gives the speech on kindness that I have to choose kindness because it protects me from all of the other things in the world that are so hard. That's what Paddington 2 is all about. They sent Paddington to prison. And because of his experience with Aunt Lucy and all of the lessons that he's taken away from her, he has this level of protection that nobody else has and everyone else has to learn. And I think it's just beautiful. What a beautiful, beautiful message. There, that's what I have to say about all of that. I am looking at the two hard stairs now. Sorry, you sent me down a hard stair rabbit hole. Because <laughs> I'm like, huh, I don't remember. They both look really good. They both look really good. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, different lighting, because one's in an elevator, and one is in uh, prison, in the kitchen. And one's with a hat. Well, they're both with hats, but one's a chef's hat. A pink one's hat. a chef's hat. Yeah. I think, but see, like when I look at the first one, it looks much more like an angry bear and not an angry character doing a hard stare. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I'm going to get you, I'm going to just get you a still shot of these side together on a giant print and send it to you so you can look at them all the time. Just, yeah, so I can have the, it's a feel uncomfortable all the time because now I'll have a double whammy Paddington hard stare. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know who could take that. That's a lot of hard stare. <laughs> a lot of hard stare. Can I just say, as somebody from the Phoenix area, Phoenix, Arizona, there we had a sheriff for a period of time, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, kind of a notorious figure. You sure did. One of the things about uh, Sheriff Joe is that he dyed all the prison outfits pink. All the way down to the boxers. And made the prisoners wear pink because he thought uh, it was funny, basically. I mean, it was it was a thing that he did and it got him a lot of attention he did all these things for it it was all his thing attention 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 i filmed in the prison and i am going to tell you right now i did actually steal a pair of pink socks (laughs) 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 for a project um so yes i just thought that was very funny that uh i actually stole pink socks from the from the jail so i guess it's not prison it's jail it's a different thing so anyway, I think that's amazing that you being, stole socks. Uh, I know. But anyway, I just every time you I deserve, watch this, anybody deserves a hard stare right now. It is you. <laughs> I just think it's very funny that this film has these prisoners all in pink outfits. And it's like that's like not a thing here in the Phoenix area in Maricopa County because of Sheriff Joe, who just kind of did it. And I couldn't help but wonder if if Paul King got the idea from seeing a story about Sheriff Joe at some point. <laughs> Oh, good old <laughs> Sheriff Joe. What a... uh, I think that's fantastic. And and I, I think in the spirit of the movie, isn't it lovely that one single red sock in one washing machine <laughs> colors everybody's uniforms, the same uniform shade of pink? I thought that was pretty Except colorful. for Knuckles. Except for Except Knuckles. Except for Knuckles. Yeah, you're right. Separate. Except for Knuckles. Separate. Uh, 
wash for him. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Did you, this is a complete side note, but Knuckles spells his name out and shows his fingers and his mm-hmm. name is Knuckles with a capital N as he says. But then every time it's written later, it's always with a K. It's always okay. Yeah. I was like, I mean, is it okay that he's, he needs a little work on his tattoo? <laughs> Maybe he can be taught and it's too late. Oh, it was so good. Brendan Gleeson uh, is just a genius. And this film, he was so good. Just so good in this movie. As, uh, as what was his last name? Knuckles McGinty. Knuckles McGinty. So let's talk about sending Paddington to prison. Leading up to that. Uh, we're talking about the pop-up book, the popping book, as the popping uh, book, as uh, so good. What's his name calls it, Mr. Gruber, Mr. Gruber, Jim Broadbent. Right, right after suggesting a delightful pair of rolling shoes. <laughs> Look at the silly monkey. Do be serious, Mr. Gruber. <laughs> okay, so he gets his popping book, but it's very expensive. Uh, it's a very expensive popping book. It is a at least a thousand coins, and so. And this is, I guess, something that does come from the books. Correct me if I'm wrong, as somebody who has read more of them than I have. But Paddington often in these books, in the Paddington books, would go and get jobs. And it was really kind of his experience of working. And each of the books, mm-hmm. or there are, there's a lot of that in the books. Is that correct? Yeah, because it, it's because it's an anthropomorphized bear. You put him, give him a job. He wants to contribute, right? That's his whole thing is like, I want to, I want to contribute and be a functional member of society. And so I'm going to do that. And well, really, I he does it because he wants so a pop up book for his aunt. Yeah. Well, he wants a pop up book, but he has, he, <laughs> there's a message behind it, right? You work for the things that you, you want to earn. The things you want, you have to earn. You don't steal them. No. And that's and that's the thing with uh, with this story is that it starts off with Paddington wanting this book and saying, I'm going to get a job. He tries the barbershop first. Big failure. I know we're going to talk about that. And then he goes into becoming a window washer. And that's really what he does to start making money. And he's, he seems to be washing all of London. He really kind of is all over the place washing everything, including the tall tower. Isn't that a fantastic physical gag, though? Because he's he is first he's using his body as the substance with which to wash the windows. And yeah, he he washes all these different con all up and down his road. And then he's hanging off the side of the shard in London. And and that's where Mr. Brown's office is on like the, you know, 10, 10 floors from the top of the shard. And it's delightful. It is a delightful physical gag that makes me smile every time. I don't I don't tire of it as He's boogieing his body down the back of the glass. Well, yeah, I, I like how he realizes that's the way to do it is with his body. That was a, a very fun little gag. But also, that's our first return to having the band actually performing live in the film, yeah. uh, just like we did in the first film. And I, they're only, I believe, in it twice this time. But it was it was fun to see them like performing. It was fun and nerve-wracking to see them performing on the uh, window-washing whatever you call that thing that they, you know, they hang up on the, hang off the side of yeah. the building to wash from. Right. Yeah. And the music again was good. It doesn't, I didn't leave me singing the way the m- music in the first one did. I can't even, I can't place one of their themes, uh, one of their band's songs right now even. Uh, so anyway, so he is window washing to earn his, his coins. And then there, he, he has the popping, there's the event where he meets Hugh Grant's character, Hugh Grant is, shows interest in the book, and uh, Paddington tells him, well, it's at Mr. Gruber's. And that leads to the case of mistaken identity and the caper, uh, at which point a mysterious man breaks into Mr. Gruber's, 
Paddington happens to to be there and mistaken for the thief and uh, the real thief gets away. Uh, And so Paddington is arrested, tried and sent to prison. Is he ever? Is he ever? There's a lot of stuff that that uh, plays out and it works well the way it does in context of. Uh, you know, we've got the big chase scene and then we've got the court scene once he is arrested and you've got people talking on his behalf and everything. But it seems like things just aren't going to go in his favor, especially because of two particular things in the courtroom. One is the judge who brilliantly we saw earlier in the film when Paddington tries his first attempt at a job at the barbershop and ends up making a mess of things, including shaving uh, a stripe right up the center of a man's head, who turns out to be the judge, unfortunately for him. Number two is the fact that when uh, dear uh, Phoenix, uh, Hugh Grant's character, testifies, he, of course, is the criminal and is completely lying about the fact that he saw paddington there and did not see this mysterious man that paddington said he saw because of course it is him that is phoenix so here is the here's another message which is you know at what lengths do we trust celebrity uh and in this movie a lot well according to mrs bird you absolutely do not trust actors Right. <laughs> Never trust actors. The, the this was like, Mrs. Bird always knows the answer to everything. Yeah, but but at the, at this point, you know, we all we know is that everybody loves this having this famous guy living in the neighborhood. And uh, he it turns out he's he uses that to get away with much. Actors are some of the most evil, devious people on the planet. They lie for right. a living. <laughs> Um, so the judge, uh, we should say, uh, the the uh, actor is uh, uh, Tom Conti, and his his plays Judge Gerald Biggleswade. Of course, he does. <laughs> Tom Conti. Uh, that's a person who's been acting for a long, long time. A long, long time. Yeah, he was nominated for an act on Oscar. Are you looking? Are you're looking at IMDb? I was going to give you. Uh, give you a known force yeah no i'm looking i wouldn't have been able to get a single one of them no he's not he's a he's one of those those guys yeah like for example did you even remember he was in derailed if i saw derailed i instantly forgot it that was a a terrible terrible movie it was what clive owen and jennifer aniston and then vincent cassell was the bad guy that's an awful movie the the big news is that he is in the he plays uh, Albert Einstein in the upcoming Christopher Nolan uh, take on Oppenheimer. Oh, does he? Yes, I can see yeah. that. I can definitely see that. Yeah, me too. So that's him. And now Paddington goes off to prison. Yes. Prison is hard, Pete. P- prison is hard. We get that right away. Paddington asks his guard, um, you know, Miss or um, Mrs. Brown always reads me a bedtime story. Are you going to do that? And that's no the first lesson. Story. No bedtime stories in prison. So sad. And, and what I love about this is like Paddington clearly has no idea about like just the realities of of what prison is and doesn't know. It's probably not the sort of place. I mean, it's like sending a child to prison to like a, a, an adult's prison. You know, nobody has any problem with this. We're sending a bear cub into yeah. prison. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, nobody nobody questions that. It, it's the it's the worst, but it's also it, I think a lot of this movie has this sort of Wes Anderson vibe. Like it's just a like a, a subtle cough to the left, and you're you're in a Wes Anderson movie with this movie. Um, and so that's one of the things that I really I really like about it as a Wes Anderson fan. Like there there is this tone and texture of prison that is has a degree of flamboyance and symmetry in the production design and uh, putting everybody in pink just feels uh, so Anderson to me um, in in his sort of nature, the way he approaches dry comedy and wit. Um, we have some of the same, the escape sequence, which we'll get to, uh, where they jump down through the holes in that sort of diorama cutaway production design, I think is, is, uh, a deeply Anderson kind of a, kind of a, a tell. I, I love it. And, uh, in the way the characters approach one another, of course, what we get with Paddington, his first meal is, uh, is uh, something that is he finds doesn't fit his palate. But everyone in the prison is terrified to talk to the chef. To Knuckles McGinty. Well, and, you know, your your point about Anderson is an interesting one. There are certain filmmakers who very much latch on to a very specific style of, of how they tell their stories. And I definitely feel like Paul King is one of those people who has found kind of a particular way that he likes to craft his stories and having characters you know, breaking that fourth wall, looking directly into the camera as if, you know, there's just like almost like lots of POVs. Like we're seeing people looking into the camera all the time, but it's not necessarily breaking the fourth wall. It's just, you know, we are the character. It's a lot of POV stuff. And it's it's an interesting choice that he does often throughout the film as we're interacting with these different characters. And it works really well in the way he tells mm-hmm. these stories. And just like these, the dioramas, which we also saw in the first film, the way he builds this world like it's a children's book. You know, we've got the dioramas. We've got, I mean, even when we're looking at the pop-up book and it becomes oh. this live action, you know, journey as Paddington is walking Aunt Lucy through London and showing her is the that site. an extraordinary sequence, by oh, the way? Just, like, I can't, just, we didn't mention that. that it's it just, extraordinary. It's, it's stunning the way that it's put together. I mean, it really is just geniusly crafted. Um, but yeah, and then like the sorts of homages that we get, like the modern times homage when Paddington during the breakout is like, like going through the gears, much like Charlie Chaplin in modern times. And and you've got like those sorts of things. And, and so Paul King seems like a person who, who understands how to kind of like build a world in a cinematic language. And, you know, Edgar Wright, I mean, he's very much the same vein as that. And it's very fun. And even just like time-lapse, something as simple as how a time-lapse is used in a film, in both of the films, we see a time-lapse, you know, over a period just to like get us through a night, but it just, it fits and it flows and it kind of moves, uh, moves us through in a very gentle way that just kind of keeps the story moving briskly. And, and I really enjoy the way Paul King crafts the stories and builds these worlds with all of this stuff well and 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 since you mentioned the time lapse one of the the very cool visual elements in this film is the time lapse of the baking uh where we actually have you know characters moving through the scene as the camera um you know sort of moves through the kitchen or sort of pans across the kitchen as more and more prison chefs come in and are making their their goods and they end up creating this beautiful um, palette of color and 
texture and everything by the time we get from left all the way to right with the kitchen has been transformed into someplace really special. And it's all done through a really neat sort of time lapse effect. I think it's great. Which we also do in the prison as Paddington's as the joy that that comes with marmalade sandwiches affects everybody in the prison and they all kind of change their tune and you see this pan across the whole prison yard as all of a sudden flower pots appear out in front of everybody's cells and then all of a sudden like banners and streamers are hung up everywhere and people are jumping rope and uh and you kind of get like this burst of life happening in the in the prison as as suddenly everybody has found kind of like this joy in life again, ending with the culmination of the entire thing when the guard is actually over the intercom reading a bedtime story to all the inmates. It just, I mean, like the way that that montage is crafted, it's just, it's exceptional. Yeah, it really is. And that all the prisoners are now bought in, right, to talk yeah, about the 100%. influence Paddington has on the people around him. I think it's a really sweet note that he's he's able to to break down even the hardest of personalities in the film. Can I say my favorite moment in all in the entire prison sequence, which I mean, all of it is great. But my favorite moment is when Paddington is talking to the Browns in the in the little um, little booth where they have their conversations, and Knuckles is there, and <laughs> Mister Brown is like, "I'm sorry, this is a private conversation." And then, and then Paddington introduces him to all <laughs> of his friends, and it's just like it, it they're is all so there perfectly crafted though like the way like each person like say the name they pop in say the next name they pop in spoon and fibs and like all these different prisoners and it is so funny especially like as we get to like different prisoners like mad dog and this guy pops up and he's like woof, woof, woof. you know it's, just, it's, <laughs> it's so nonsensical but it builds this this i mean this movie is its own pop-up book you know we have this interesting visual and i can imagine how fun it was to rehearse this like with the actors okay now you pop in now you pop in and that's your mark and 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 the way that all of that lines up i mean it was just it was just hilarious i loved seeing the way that that played out and uh and you know and the scene just kind of keeps building because then mr brown turns the switch thinking that he's hit the the microphone but he's actually just turned the lights off and of course all the prisoners can still hear him and <laughs> it just it plays perfectly and i think that's the the magical way that king um crafts the stories and the fun that they have in the way they write it it's it very much is uh kind of a joyous uh kind of a family style of entertainment. The names are so good. T-Bone, Fib, Spoon, Farmer Jack, Charlie Rumble, The Professor, Knuckles, McGinty, Jimmy the Snitch, Squeaky Bob, Double ba or Sneak Squeaky Pete, Double Bass Bob, Mad Dog, Johnny Cashpoint. <laughs> Ka-ching! They're fantastic. One of them, I can't remember which one it is, but he, like, uh, you know, it's like he had been a... Um, he must have been a politician because when he pops up, he could he just keeps every time he says something, it's it's like a political response that they would have to the media or something. It's Was like, that Sir Jeffrey Wilcott? I, I, I'm not <laughs> sure. But he he's there? just like, I, uh, I can I, I, I have no comment on that or something like that. Like he says something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Anyway, there it's a fantastic uh, cast of, of utility prisoners that 
that make easy work of this uh, of this sequence. So uh, the prison is great, and then this gives us to gets us to the second uh, sort of the second act of the caper, which is getting him getting Paddington out of prison one way or another. And meanwhile, the family is doing their part to try to to pledge his innocence and and to solve the crime. And um, you know, of course, we get the great performances from the family, um, uh, the Brown Sally Hawkins and and uh, Hugh Bonneville. Julie Walters, the two kids uh, get more to do this time. Um, you know, it's fun to see them in action. And I just want to say one of the one of the other smart things about the way that they craft the story is right out of the gate, we're given something with all of the family members as far as what their journey is going to be over the course of the story. Right, Mrs. Brown is struggling with her particular story um, because it's an adventure story. And so she wants to go on her own adventure. And so she's practicing to swim the English Channel. Uh, Mr. Brown is looking for a promotion at work, but is finding that he's crossed a line in his life where he's kind of that middle-aged guy that no one wants to promote anymore. It's this younger guy who gets the promotion, and he's now feeling like he's getting old. He's past his prime, and you know that's affecting him. Uh, the daughter, you know, she broke up with her boyfriend, who we met briefly in the last film, and bought a printing press and has started her own newspaper. And now she's kind of like trying to be a reporter. And that's kind of a fun little thing to see what she's doing there. But with no with no boys involved, which no is boy, right. her it's, kind of yeah. thing, yeah. Exactly. And then Jonathan uh, is no longer interested in train sets. He thinks they're uncool, and he wants to go by J-Dog. And because he he's you know he's hit that point where his image affects him, and you get their journey for each of them how they they kind of like evolve over the course of the story as as Judy starts kind of getting her newspaper out there and Jonathan's transition is my favorite because at the end <laughs> when they hop on that other train and he starts driving it. My name's not J Dog. It's Jonathan Brown, and I like <laughs> steam trains. <laughs> And that was like, he, yeah. like that point in your life when you're a kid and you, you can't like things anymore because it's not cool. And then you yeah. finally cross that line acknowledging, you know, what, I can still like this. It doesn't matter. And that was that was a great moment. <laughs> I think it's a it is a great moment. I was I was looking up um, our one of our favorite websites, TV tropes dot org uh, to see what kind of of tropes, because there were a couple that I picked up that um that i thought were fun i was wondering like how many am i missing like how many why does this movie feel so familiar how many am i missing one that that i thought of uh or that hit me was the sleep for days trope right where he wakes up and three days have passed at the very end of the climax of the movie um but there are of course because you when you're a fan of tropes you sure do find a lot of them are there any without you looking at tv tropes what tropes can you pull out of this movie uh that uh you feel like uh are trope worthy uh hmm i mean the i mean I, i'm not sure exactly how big we're looking but obviously like the inner innocent person gets put in prison and has to prove their innocence that's that's a big trope mm -hmm. um that we've seen countless times hmm i i don't know i i i I feel like you there's... got the you got the big one. It was like the bulk of the plot is the clear my name plot. The accidental person's put in prison. The 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 one that I was I was hoping you would get, but had no expectation that you would ever possibly get is Chekhov's gag. Do you know what Chekhov's gag is in this context? 
Well, I mean, it's it's Chekhov's gun. So if you're going to put something there, you're going to have to use it at some point. So what would be the gag mm-hmm. uh, it, that that we set up in the film that you know is going to come into play at some other point in the film? Mm-hmm. That's the principal question. Um, I mean, I feel like there's probably a lot of things because I mean, it's, it's, that's the essentially. I mean, the thing with Chekhov's anything is it's really a setup payoff. Yes, and, and so you could say the ladder is is a Chekhov's gag because you set up the ladder as far as what Paddington can use with this crazy ladder, and then of course you got the great use of it um, later in the film as he's trying to get from one train to the other. So I don't, but I don't know if that would fit. That's definitely in there. So here's here are all of the Chekhov related tropes that TVTropes.org pulls out. And I've never heard of some of these uh, adaptations. Uh, the Chekhov's gun there is listed under the Chekhov's gun trope. Uh, Paddington's sticky encounter with a candy apple at the fair gives him sure. an idea to use candy apples to crawl across the, the, the train top later. Uh, his telescopic ladder, which he used for window washing, comes in handy during his train chase uh, when he tries to get to the other train, although foiled by Phoenix. So that's under Chekhov's gun. Chekhov's gunman, the elderly gentleman that Paddington has an unfortunate count- encounter with at the barbershop, ends up being the judge at his trial. <laughs> okay. okay. Chekhov's gag. Chekhov's gunman. That's funny. <laughs> isn't that good? Chekhov's gag, the marmalade sandwich Paddington keeps in his hat during prison. He accidentally force feeds Knuckles some of it <laughs> and causes the chef to warm to him. I love that. Here is a whole set of Chekhov's skills. Okay. And there are, let's see, one, two, three, four, five Chekhov's skills at play in the movie. Can you name any of them in this little game I'm calling Chekhov's Andy? Well, I'm trying to think of what would be considered a skill because, like, window washing. But, like, does that come into play at another point in the film? And I, I don't think it does. Well, let me, let me just clear this up for you. None of them are Paddington. They are all the family, members of the family. Oh, Mr. Brown's Chakra Robics. Chakrabatics. Chakrabatics. Yes. Yep. So yep. that's one. It we allows him to do the splits between the trains. Which is genius. I love Brilliant. that. He Henry actually has two in the movie that are that are outed. Okay. Um well that's one. Uh and then obviously Mrs. Brown's swimming. Got it. Yep. You absolutely have uh, it. Well and, and and Jonathan's steam trains. Yes, Jonathan's steam trains. What about Judy? Judy's um what does she do? The I mean the newspaper stuff, but I'm trying to remember specifically. I mean she she's the one who looks at the newspaper and recognizes the the name from the photo that she took. If there is anything thin about Chekhov's skill, it's this one. Uh, Judy's journalist skills are used throughout, yeah. specifically tape recording a conversation to trick Phoenix into thinking that he's talking to his agent. <laughs> really nice uh, buttons. Yeah, I, I would. I, <laughs> that's really good. The last Henry. Okay, hold on. Henry, uh, Henry. It, okay. Another Henry one, it would be, no, I don't know if that would count, when he's lying to Phoenix about using his insurance skills to check his house out? Nope. This is one that we learn about Henry Oh, it's it's, flashback. It's, it's Bullseye. Bullseye Brown. Bullseye Brown. That's right. That's exactly right. Yes. So those are the big five Chekhov skills. So those are all the Chekhov things. Chekhov skills, Chekhov gunman, Chekhov's gun, Chekhov's gag. 
Uh, wow. so I, Chekhov. <laughs> that's so funny. There's a lot of Chekhov. I think we should figure out Chekhov some things for every movie we talk about now. I think we, sh- I think we absolutely should. Yeah. This is going to be the Chekhov X. We're going to change the podcast name. The next <laughs> Chekhov. <laughs> Chekhov's real. The, uh, well, I, yeah, it's, I mean, and that brings up a lot of just interesting things. One thing that I, I have to call out because it made me laugh so hard in this, uh, and in the first film is the, 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 I don't know what his role is. He's like the guard who is, um, taking charge of the scene at the cathedral where the statue had fallen and he's like keeping an eye on the nuns and he is the same guy from the first film who was the guard at the uh the geographers society and in both films he calls out how attractive the 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 man dressed as a woman is yeah, it just—it's one of the funniest things. As he's just like, you know, in the first one, he's like, "Stop that sexy, stop that sexy lady," or whatever. And this one, he—he says another very funny thing about, "Stop that stunning sister." <laughs> that is, yes, that is uh, that is listed in TV tropes as the attractive bent gender trope. Yeah. Oh, okay. See, of course, there's a there's yep. a specific. Thing there that. is a, there Barry, is a thing. the security guard Simon Farnaby playing that role um, is just genius. The way that he plays that character in both of these films, he's Barry in he is Barry in both films. So clearly, he left the Geographers Society and went to work at the cathedral. Yeah, right. Yeah, as so you good. do. So of course. Good. Yep. So good. One of many, one of many great character bits in this film. And that's, that's like every little character ends up having their moment. And I enjoy that, uh, the way that Paul King crafts these stories. And, and it's a tricky thing to do, like giving little characters enough to, enough meat to make that character interesting. Like, and I, it's a challenge, I think, for writers to do well, but you do find it in stuff like Wes Anderson, Edgar Wright films, people who can craft these stories where they, they find little things to give to people. And like Paddington, like when he leaves to go uh, down to Mr. Gruber's, he hops on a bicycle and he's chatting with that lady. And then there's the, the woman who runs the, the newsstand and, and the colonel up in the window and the guy who, the doctor who keeps uh, locking himself out of his apartment and even the dog, like all of these little characters have such small little moments in the film, the garbage truck guy, like they all have these little things but the writers give them enough meat, enough meat, enough, you know, things to do in the story that gives them enough. Like, I feel like I get to know these characters and they're only in it for, you know, all of like, you know, maybe two minutes tops. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, this is a great example of no small parts. I mean, it's they're all fun and funny and, and delightful. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, back to Hugh Grant. Yeah, I feel like of all the characters we've talked about, it's very little about him so far. Yeah, I mean, because he's really so, so good. And and what he gets to do by way of sort of channeling this multiple personality uh, experience through him talking to and acting as all of his great characters of his career gives him so much to play with, right? Like he has, he is a bouquet of small parts that all make something really, really fantastic. And then, uh, and, and it all leads to, 
exactly what he wanted all along, which is an extravagant career revival, which he gets in prison in our credits. Like it, it's it, at the end of the movie, like he gets what he's wished for uh, all, all along and gets to be adored again. He just has, as he says, a captive audience. His <laughs> journey from from the beginning of the film, you know, launching this festival to uh, the end of the film where he's coming down the stairs and, and doing the pitter pat, pitter pat, like dance number is extraordinarily satisfying for me. Like I he levels up everything from the evildoer in the first movie. And Nicole Kidman was great. We are on board for Nicole Kidman. But my goodness, Hugh Grant is perfect. And, you know, I mean, he was uh, he was kind of in this period where he was in a little bit of a comeback like people. Well, I don't know. I feel like this may have spurred on something where people wanted to, like, bring him back. He actually has this quote in Vanity Fair um, shortly after the film. He said, I was presenting, I think, at the Golden Globes, and they do that thing when you walk out, and they say, from the forthcoming Paddington 2, Hugh Grant. And someone showed me Twitter afterwards, and it was, people were full of derision. Christ, has it come to that? Poor old Hugh, Paddington 2, sequel to a kid's film. It's particularly annoying in the case of Paddington 2 because I genuinely believe it may be the best film I've ever been in. So it is one of these things where he was this actor who had been so big in the 90s. And then there was this period where he kind of fell off the radar for a little while or wasn't necessarily like the greatest of films. And it was like only when he would return for another rom-com that people go, oh, yeah, Hugh Grant, he does those things. And he kind of seemed to really be struggling. And then he hit this point. And I feel like this may have been kind of the the thing that really kind of swung him back in people's favor. But um, like, I don't know, I just... I, he's an actor who I incredibly, incredibly enjoy watching and seeing what he's done. I mean, I mean, I guess he hasn't done a whole lot since then. I mean, all he's done is The Gentleman and then that Operation Fortune, uh, Rue de Guerre film. And so I don't know. Um, I mean, are you generally a fan of Hugh Grant? You know, what do you say about his kind of rough, <laughs> rough sailing personally? You know, like he he had some issues. Um, and I think, you know, largely people probably paid too much attention uh, to what he was struggling with personally. Uh, and that, you know, had its own impact on his career. I can't imagine had he had the same experience uh, today, uh, we would I don't think we would see him anymore. Right. Like, I just think he would be he would be gone from the annals of film history but because of you know things weren't quite so intense with social media when his struggles were happening i think he was able to have a comeback i think the other piece was that he was known for some really specific types and i think he was struggling to figure out how to how to be untyped uh as the charming goofy romantic lead and what I, if to to my eye, what we're seeing right now is in this kind of resurgence of Hugh Grant is uh, a much more interesting, complex Hugh Grant. Um, you know, one that I I really, really enjoy watching. I think he has much more texture and experience, and um, you know, he he's a he's a really interesting actor. Yeah, uh, I I'm I am I'm in the bag for Hugh Grant for sure. I I think he's great. Did you watch The Undoing? That was the the project that, you know, brought the Paddington villains together, <laughs> Nicole Gibbon and Hugh Grant. 
I didn't. I did not watch The Undoing. Um, that was, uh, I think that one was largely, um, man, I, it feels like it just was unpromoted, weirdly. Right? It I mean, was I didn't know pr- anything was, about it. I thought there was some real controversy about it. I don't think there was controversy, but it was one of those things. I mean, it it, it had a lot of buzz when it came out. And then I think uh, by the time it got to the end of it, people weren't as enamored by it or something. Like, I know that's mm-hmm. at least how my wife felt when she watched it. But I mean, it's still 7.4 on IMDb. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that it is something that uh, some people certainly latched on to. Um, it's, I don't know, I've been curious about it. I haven't quite made it to a point where I'm going to watch it, but it certainly has been something that's been on my radar. Well, and so here's an interesting one, right? Like, he he made that comment about Paddington 2, Christ, is this what it's come to, right? Poor Hugh in, in Paddington 2. Could you not say the same thing about every uh, big-name actor in upcoming Dungeons & Dragons, which he is also in as the rogue? Uh, here is a movie that comes with some box office risk, I think, right? And uh, what what are some of these people doing in this movie if anything um you know i i i'm curious i'm curious about how this movie is going to perform because of the legacy of D in the box office i think everybody who's involved is probably making a big mistake <laughs> frankly <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I have zero, zero hope, zero interest in that film. I just, I think it's going to be a, just a hot mess of a project. I mean, I enjoyed Vacation. Uh, I thought Game Night was fine. Uh, you know, I didn't love it. That was uh, two films that uh, Francis, John Francis Daly uh, had directed beforehand uh, with his co-directing partner, Jonathan Goldstein. But I, I don't know. I, it's not what I'm looking for in a Dungeons and Dragons project, and everything about it looks like it's just a mess. But you liked Warcraft, what are you, isn't that the same? Isn't that the same thing? Didn't you? What are you talking weren't about? Weren't you in? Uh, weren't you in? Uh, in the bag for World of Warcraft? No, you didn't like that. That movie looked terrible. I never even watched it. No, I, really? Who are you talking about? No, you're talking about somebody else. Who am I thinking Z- of? Zero interest. That always looked man. Like. Some I have another friend who looks like you. Oh no, he's uh, my other friend, uh, Pandy. Really like, really like that movie. Yeah. No, I I don't know why people are signing on to that. I think I think it has been sold to all the actors as it's going to be the next big thing, and I think I think they're all going to regret being a part of it. Hot hot take. Well, I hope their regret is brief. Yeah. Move on. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I have I think I have higher hopes for it, but I feel like it is like if if anything's going to save it, it's going to be the names of the that are in this thing. And there it is. Hugh Grant is in Dungeons and Dragons somehow. Is he going to be uh, is it going to be worth it? I don't know. I just, I just want to circle back to this film for a minute because I know we're running out of time. Yeah. Uh, and Hugh Grant, specifically, one of the things that I think is so fun about him and what he gets to do is that he gets to, I mean, he's an actor and he's playing an actor who had been big at one point. Now he's doing dog food commercials. We get to see the dog food commercial and it's, it's just as bad as you would expect. It's just, I mean, ba- it's brilliant in its badness. <laughs> Woof. It's so good. Harley's gourmet dog food. Um, so Not great. for humans. Not for humans. 
Um, but also, I mean, he gets to actually like, uh, as this actor, this grandson of this magician, and there's this whole backstory that we get, which is uh, well crafted. But I love that he has all of his, uh, his, I don't know, his favorite characters, I guess, is what we're seeing, at, like all kind of in mannequin form up in his attic. And he puts on those outfits to play these characters as he's trying to kind of solve the puzzle of, of, of this pop-up book. And, uh, like there are those scenes where he is performing with himself as these different characters jumping from voice to voice as they're having this conversation. It's like, yes. God, what fun to do as an actor to kind of like have this conversation with like five different characters in your head. I love the way he did that. And it, it comes across exceptionally well and, and it works really well for a film like this. Yeah, I think so, too. I think he's, that, again, just like that's why you have you find an actor who will say yes to a movie like this of the caliber of Hugh Grant. Like he brings enormous skill to be able to pull all that off and and do it in a lighthearted, fun, funny way. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. All right. All right. Last little uh, note. I Richard Ayoade is the forensic investigator and he's presenting. <laughs> He's presenting at the trial of Paddington and just the way he's describing the board. He's got kind of the, the overhead layout of uh, Mr. Gruber's shop and he's showing like where the footprints are. The footprints. And then they're talking about the marmalade and, and he's just like, we found uh, evidence of it here. And he just kind of gestures to the entire thing. <laughs> it was so funny. Uh, just like he, he worked like this, this sort of thing. Speaking of, again, going back to the no small part, giving someone like Richard Ayoade a one scene part where he's a forensic investigator, but giving him something to do that actually makes it play. I mean, that's, I think, such a special and difficult thing for filmmakers to do. Yeah, right. And calls in a lot of relationships, too. Like, it just feels like it feels like this whole sort of bouquet of friends, like a parade of friends that are coming together for a day here, a day there to, to make this movie. So many Sweet. people. So many yeah. people. Yeah. All right. All right. Are we done? Well, yes, I think that's it for now. So we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Energy Plus, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. So where are we going to get uh, Paddington 3? And and will that make for a full fifteen stars that are allotted <laughs> well, to it from the next reel? You know, I um I'm very curious about about what is going to happen with Paddington Three. It was uh, supposed to start filming this year. Now it's filming. Uh, in 2023 it's called paddington in peru is uh, i mean at least they're going by i don't know if it'll just be paddington 3 by the time it comes out or what um it is actually um they're filming it in london and actually peru so instead of costa rica or the iguazu falls we are actually going to per well i don't know it says right now it's going to be shot in peru i'm very curious 
if that is actually going to happen. But I'd like to think so, because I think that would be, you know, a great, a great benefit for them to actually do something like that. And I can only imagine that, you know, the country of Peru would probably give quite a bit of, um, you know, incentive for them to come and actually film there. I think that would be very, very cool. So um, what makes me a little nervous is that Paul King is not directing it. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dougal? Dougal? I'm not sure how you Dougal, say Dougal, I think. Dougal. Dougal Wilson uh, is scheduled. He's slated to direct it. Um, apparently, he does have Paul King's full blessing to do it. Um, with his own creative flair and style, we'll see what uh, what that means. Uh, Dougal Wilson, I guess, is very much a commercial guy. He's done all sorts of commercials for Apple, AT&T, IKEA, Coldplay. He did um, some stuff for their Life in Technicolor promo videos. Uh, this is what Paul King has said about this. After 10 years of working on the Paddington movies, I feel absurdly protective of the little bear, and I'm delighted that Dougal will be there to hold his paw as he embarks on his third big screen adventure. Dougal's work is never less than astounding, funny, beautiful, heartfelt, imaginative, and totally original. Aunt Lucy once asked us to please look after this bear. I know Dougal will do so admirably. Um, so I guess, uh, I guess that's good. Well, and to, to, I haven't I haven't seen all of uh, by by any stretch all of Dougal's work, but I've certainly seen the Apple stuff, and he's right. I'm it's really sweet. I've seen the Coldplay stuff. I like it, and so you know, I mean, everybody's got to start somewhere on their feature journey. Yeah, I hope it's I hope it's for the best in this case. Um, King did. Uh, come up with the concept for the film. The script, however, was written by Simon Farnaby, Mike Burton, John Foster, James Lamont. Uh, at the point when, you know, at this stuff, there's really not a lot of information, not a lot of casting decisions have been made at this point. I'm very curious. I will say that something that about this particular film, we talked about this quite a bit in the Star Wars, uh, when we were looking at the original Star Wars trilogy, our last series, is that, you know, just because something is made doesn't mean you need to include it in what in your scope of what you always watch. If there's a third and a fourth and a fifth Paddington film, but you only like the first two, then just watch the first two. You don't have to latch on to all of them. And I think that's fair to say with this, because the way that this film ends with Aunt Lucy showing up at the door and that perfect, perfect moment between Paddington and Aunt Lucy and that hug and that final shot of Paddington's face in just complete uh, happiness, like that to me is like a perfect ending of these two films. You don't need anything more. Mm -hmm. If there's a third film and it's fine, great. Uh, but, you know, if it's not, it's like I have these two films. I don't necessarily need to worry about that. So who are you convincing right now? Because it feels a little bit like you're convincing your inner child. I just am. I'm just being careful because <laughs> you are because your heart has been hurt before. I, I have. Yes, my heart has been hurt before. I just want Paddington in Peru to be as great as these first two. And I just have yeah. to temper my expectations in case it's not. Uh, I can't. I mean, you say casting decisions haven't been made. That makes me even more nervous, too, mostly because if Ben Wishaw isn't the voice of Paddington, there is no other voice of Paddington for me. And that that's going to be the thing that breaks my heart. Uh, I need I need Ben back in back in the, the throat. Yeah. I mean, I and at this point, like IMDb has zero cast list like they don't yeah. they have not even gotten to a point where they have officially committed anything. And that makes me. Uh, you know, it makes me a little nervous because, yeah, you can't 
do Paddington, I think, at this point without Ben Wishaw. What if what if Netflix buys it? <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> the worst. Didn't Ben Wishaw I mean he did uh I have to look this look at this now. Didn't he do the animated uh TV show? He did. The Adventures The Adventures yeah. of Paddington. Right. Um he's done a, a number of of Paddington things. The Queen Elizabeth and Paddington Bear film short. Um so he's he is he, I mean he's He's firmly the voice of Paddington. I can't I, I can't believe that they would look at someone else to, to do that right now. And besides, what's he got going on? Like, really? <laughs> ben was uh, How to do it award season? Um, it did okay for itself. 14 wins, 50 other nominations. At the BAFTAs, it was nominated for Outstanding British Film of the Year, but lost to three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which is funny because, <laughs> like, nothing about that screams British other than, obviously, the filmmaker. It's just it's it, I don't know the way that the way that they come around with that it's like it's strange I guess it is British it's a British director um, I, uh, I I must have been British funding too I guess I didn't look into that but that's interesting uh, three billboards took that and supporting actor Hugh Grant was nominated but lost to Sam Rockwell also for three billboards it also was nominated for adapted screenplay but lost to Call Me by Your Name adapted by James Ivory. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Saturn Awards. It was nominated for Best Fantasy Film, but lost to The Shape of Water. At the Annie Awards, which is the awards for the animation, it was nominated for Outstanding Achievement for Character Animation in Live Action Production, but lost to Mary Poppins Returns. Maybe they just had more things animated. Mm-hmm. Um, at the Heartland Films, it was nominated for Truly, or actually it won the Truly Moving Picture Award. And then this was an interesting one that I wanted to bring up. There's this thing called the Legionnaires of Laughter Legacy Awards. In 2017, Jerry Lewis founded this group called the Legionnaires of Laughter. And this set of nominees was the first round of films that had been nominated for the Legions of Laughter Legacy Awards. This was designed to be an event to honor world-recognized comedians and entertainers for their contribution to the art of comedy and their global impact on the world. Interestingly, I could only find that the nominations happened. I can't find anything about the event actually taking place. And it makes me wonder if the whole thing ended up falling apart before the actual ceremony and we're left with just a list of nominees. Uh, it was nominated for Best Children's <laughs> Comedy Film, along with Despicable Me 3, Incredibles 2, Peter Rabbit, and Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, I mean, it would certainly be my pick of of those five. What would be your pick? Paddington 2, Despicable Me 3, Incredibles 2, Peter Rabbit, or Thor Ragnarok? Yeah, I think I'd probably go with Paddington. Yeah. I lo- I I mean I adore this movie. I, I it's do too. easy. Yeah. Hey, um before we go, I have a little game for you. Oh, it's a quid pro quo, tit for tat. Tit All for right. tat. Yeah. Um mine is the co-star uh, a little game called the co-star game. <laughs> Co-star game, okay. So some some of the actors in here. I just wanted. I, I picked I picked four actors, and I want to get your sense on if you can figure out what other things they might have been in together. You mean these actors with each other? With each other, yeah. Co-stars. Uh, okay. We know they're we know they're in this film together. So the four people, right? Uh, that you're going to be looking at are Ben Wishaw, Hugh Grant. Hugh Bonneville, and Sally Hawkins. So first up, Ben Wishaw and Hugh Grant, Pete. Can you think of things that the two of them have been in together? Ben Wishaw and Hugh Grant. Yeah. Has Hugh Grant been in a Bond? No. He has not been in a Bond. No, that was Ray Fiennes. Okay. 
I'll tell you, there's one miniseries, and I'm not counting like, you know, IMDb lists, like they were on the award show together, things like that. I'm not doing any of that sort of stuff. It's just movies, miniseries, things like that, Uh, TV. So there's one miniseries and two movies. Obviously, Paddington 2 is one of those movies. So there's one other movie that has been a film board, and there's a TV miniseries. A movie that has been a film board? Yes. Oh. Um, Wow. Do you want me to give you a clue? If I say Hugh Grant, Cannibal King. <laughs> Hugh Grant, Cannibal King. Yes, that's Hugh that, Grant. That became our, our that? <laughs> moniker for him for quite a time. Got <laughs> oh it. I mean, it rings. It definitely rings a, a bell. 2012. Three directors for this particular behemoth of a film. Behemoth of a oh was this Cloud Atlas? Cloud Atlas, yes. <laughs> they are two That's of the right. characters it that was... we see over time. Yes. Okay, right. Because who was that? That was the Wachowskis and uh, uh, Tom Tickfer. Tickfer. Yep. Nice. Okay. And then the miniseries. I don't know if you're going to know this. Uh, Twenty eighteen. Let me just read the. Um, the description on IMDb, see if you can get it from that. And I won't say the name. British Liberal Party leader is accused of conspiracy to murder his gay ex-lover and forced to stand trial in 1979. I have not one clue. Not a single clue. It was on Amazon. It's called A Very English Scandal. I have never heard of it. Really? Uh, I, got, did it, you watch it? Is this uh, a no, thing? No, but it's, it's another thing that's been on my radar because it got amazing, amazing praise when it came out. Okay. Uh, mainly for Hugh Grant and Ben Wishaw. All right. Well. So, yeah, definitely something worth checking out. I know you'll never watch it because it's serialized. So, okay. No, it's a miniseries. I'm totally fine with miniseries. <laughs> you're, you're down for mini. Okay, good. All right, good. That's where the line is drawn. <laughs> All right, next up, Sally Hawkins and Hugh Bonneville. Have they been in anything else other than the two Paddington films? Sally Hawkins and Hugh Bonneville. I don't know. Were they in like Downton Abbey together? Uh, they weren't in Downton Abbey. They're, they're, they were actually in an episode of a Shakespearean, The Hollow Crown. Um, it was in Henry VI, Part One. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't have gotten. Let's just say I wouldn't have gotten that. Yeah, they, this is a this is a very difficult one. They were also in a TV miniseries called Tipping the Velvet. No, never heard of that either. Two thousand two, from way back, way back, two thousand two. Let me just say, Pete, this also has Benedict popping up in this. The old uh, Cumberbatch, BC, BC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm not familiar with Tipping the Velvet. The story of Nan Astley, who falls in love with three different women on her journey to stardom and happiness in 1887 Victorian England. Yeah, so, no, I've never heard of it. That's Sally Hawkins and, and Hugh Bonneville. Next up, Hugh the Hughes, Hugh Grant and Hugh Bonneville. Hugh Grant and Hugh Bonneville. Yeah, I will tell you, there's one other film, and it's a very, very big film. Think about Hugh Grant and the sorts of films he generally is known for. Um, he's known for romantic comedies. Oh, is he? Are you, what are you doing right now? <laughs> what? Think was it like, I, oh, oh, uh, was it like, um, uh, like Notting Hill or something? Hey, yes. Was it? Notting, was Notting, he in Hill. Notting Hill? I was just, that was just, I happened to be the first of what, four that I would have gotten to. <laughs> he's, he's one of the, I in the group. What was he? He's in, in the group. Yeah. Okay. 
All right. He's, he's the one who has no idea who she is. And he walks in and he's talking to her and then is horribly embarrassed later when he realizes right. that she's this yep. famous movie star. Yep. <laughs> You're absolutely, absolutely right. So that great. was good. So great. That's good. All right. Sally Hawkins <laughs> and Hugh Grant, have they been in anything else together other than Paddington 2? Is this another like ridiculous? Uh, <laughs> this might be a trick question. TV is the answer. No, <laughs> no, they have not. They have not been in anything else together <laughs> oh other than this. <laughs> okay. How about Ben Wishaw and Sally Hawkins? Ben Wishaw and Sally Hawkins. Okay. Is this another trick question? Obviously, the two Paddington films. No, there is one other movie. There is. I'll tell you, this is a movie I would never have remembered either of them in. <laughs> really? <laughs> that is completely not going to help you at all. Can you give me a year? Uh, yes, the year is 2004. Oh, God. What was I doing in 2004? Action film. Um, Let's just say this film um, may be more known for the, act, the lead actor and, and kind of introduced him to people and said, oh, he might be great to take over this franchise. Oh, dude, I know exactly what this is. Uh, I just watched it. It's in my Letterbox Diaries, Layer Cake. It is layer cake. Do you so okay, so you just watched it. So Ben Wishaw, Sally Hawkins, did you do you remember them? Well, I I do I do remember Sally Hawkins. What was Ben Wishaw? Sally Hawkins was <laughs> I slasher. Just watched it. What was Ben Wishaw? Uh let's see. Sally Hawkins was, was he slasher. Cast? <laughs> do I not remember Ben Wishaw. I mean, I watched it like a month ago. I should have a better memory of this. Oh no, he plays Sydney. He plays Sydney. Whoever Sydney is, I I cannot place that. I can't place Sydney, but I do absolutely place Slasher, and I do more specifically place your clue and Daniel Craig. Yes, that was a good clue. Then, yes, last but not least, clue. Ben Wishaw and Hugh Bonneville. <laughs> Besides. <laughs> Paddington. I might tell you this is another. Uh, trick question. Because the answer is no. The answer is no. <laughs> God, this is the worst game ever. So of these four people, <laughs> there are two sets of them who have not ever worked together other than Paddington Films. No, I, you know, it's, I don't know. I always find it interesting. Like the British community, I feel like there are certain actors who feel like they've always worked together in so many different things, you know? And so, I don't know. I just, um, I, I thought it was interesting to kind of look at that. And I wanted to see if you remembered Cloud Atlas, because that's that is always where I go to with those two actors, which is very funny. That that took me a bit, but holy cow. So in the chat room, if you're a member uh of the supporting uh the family of Next Real Film Podcast, you could join us for the live stream. And uh Ben is posting in the live stream stills from oh, Ben Ben Wishaw in Layer Cake. Uh, ben Wishaw in Layer Cake. And and I remember it, but I absolutely would not like I look at that and I still I look at it and I know I know that's Ben Wishaw. I just don't see Ben Wishaw. Well, he was he, that's because he's almost like little baby Ben. I mean, he's he's obviously got the face hair, but um, yeah, that's interesting. Tough. Yep, Matthew Vaughn. Good movie. Yeah. OK, so so that was my little game. For nice. You. That was a good game, Andy. Yeah. Uh, so what do we do? What do we do next? Are we are we done? You need to tell us about the box office, how it did. Yeah. 
Uh, well, despite the success of the first film, King actually had less to work with for this sequel. I'm not exactly sure why. Last time he had 55 million. This time he only had 40 million, which is 41.6 million in today's dollars. The movie opened in the UK on November 10th, 2017, and like the first film, had a rollout over several months around the world, opening in the US on January 12th, 2018, opposite The Commuter and Proud Mary. The movie opened in sixth place and drew in the crowds, though not like last time. Perhaps they were aware of this when they budgeted less for it. The movie went on to earn $40.9 million domestically and $187.1 million internationally for a total gross of $237.1 million in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $1.9 million. Less than the first film, but because it costs less, it actually ended up with a higher profit margin. So there you go. Well, that is a delightful amount of coin to stuff in a tiny bear's ear. Uh, also, it would probably hurt a tiny bear a lot. So I think that uh, I'm, I'm so glad we did this series. And we so now we've we've done all the Paddington movies and we get to talk about something new. Yes, we will be talking about the Paddington, uh, kind of the collective of the Paddington films in our retake episode for our members. So if you're not a member and you're interested in tuning into that, definitely consider becoming one so that you can check that episode out. Uh, but for everyone else, we will be uh, talking about Robert Zemeckis' 1985 film, Back to the Future, kicking off his trilogy. We'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for that movie. Steven Spielberg presents Back to the Future, a Robert Zemeckis film. Marty leads an ordinary life. No McFly ever amounted to anything in the history of Hill Valley. Well, history is going to change. And 1985 is not his year. But Dr. Brown is about to change all that. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? He's sending Marty 30 years back in time. Now, he's trapped in the past. This has got to be a dream. About to meet... Chocolate. ...his future father. He's a peeping tough. Wow! And he's making an impression on his mother. He's an absolute dream. And he can sleep in my room. Ah. Anything you do could have serious repercussions on future events. Now, he's got to make his mother and father fall in love. For crying out loud, I haven't even been born yet. And only Dr. Brown... <laughs> can help him get back to the future. Are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? Precisely. Michael J. Fox. Whoa, this is heavy. Christopher Lloyd. There's that word again, heavy. Why are things so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? Back to the future. All right, Andy, we're going to visit our friends at Letterboxd, uh, where we catalog all of our reviews and our film-watching diary. If you want to get your own pro or patron membership at Letterboxd, just use the discount code NEXTREEL or visit thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd, and you'll get 20% off. Works for new accounts and renewals. Andy, how do you do with Paddington 2? My goodness, this is so easily a five-star and a hard film. And you know what's crazy is when I went and looked at my Letterboxd, I had only given it four and a half, and I don't know why, because... <laughs> Because it was a number two. Because it was uh, a sequel. I guess. But I, I even the first Paddington, I, I don't think I had given five stars. Uh, and I still didn't. I gave it four and a half. So I don't know if it's just a Paddington thing. I don't know what it is. Uh, you know, call me crazy. But this is absolutely five star in the heart. And speaking of reviews, Pete, 
We didn't talk about this, but this film was the film that had a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was considered the highest rated film ever. Uh, it even broke like Citizen Kane's place as far as that. And then a little critic by the name of Eddie Harrison came along and he actually gave it a negative review and Paddington 2 lost its spot as the best movie of all time according to Rotten Tomato because of that. So wow. Uh, yeah, I'm not exactly sure. That's how you want to be known? That's how you want to be known as the go- the one person who broke the perfect rating for a kid's film. He apparently was a fan of Paddington. This is a quote from his review. This is not my Paddington bear, but a sinister, malevolent imposter who should be shot into space or nuked from space at the first opportunity. Overconfident, snide, and sullen, this manky-looking bear... Uh, bears little relation to the classic character, and viewers should be warned. This ain't yo mama's Paddington Bear, and it won't be yours either. Maybe if you've never seen the TV show and don't know any better, this will work. But long time, long term Paddington fans will find this too much to bear. I don't even, I don't even know what to say about that. I don't even know what to say about that. That's like, did did he watch the same movie? <laughs> I didn't. I don't. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's it's quite a uh, quite a thing, quite a thing. Yeah, that's hard. That's that's a hard angle to take yeah. on this movie. Yeah. All right. Well, I I too am a five star and a heart for this movie. Oh, good. Yeah. It's it's an easy one to love. It's so yeah. so easy. Uh, so it's great. Love it, love it, love it. And yeah. I can't wait to you know throw Paddington three on as a member bonus episode down the road. Um. You know, I'm curious how it will do in my rankings, but still, I can't wait. All right. Well, that's it. That's Letterboxd. We're done. Don't forget, visit thenextworld.com slash Letterboxd. Get your patron or pro membership. Works for renewals as well. It's really great. Water's warm. So what did you think about Paddington 2? We would love to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Uh, I went with uh, I went with one of the big dog reviews on Letterboxd from uh, re- reviewer David Ehrlich. I heard of, heard of him. You've heard of him. He says the following with, and this is a five star review from David Ehrlich, who can be a bit of a uh, stick in the mud, in my opinion. Occasionally, he says, "Perfect <laughs> film." A Magic Mike XXL level delight, my highest recommendation, obviously a refutation of Brexit, but naturally also such an imaginative, inclusive, open-hearted re- response to Trump's S-hole mindset and xenophobia in general. My sold-out New York City audience clapped during the credits and then promptly shut the hell up as the brilliant final number kicked in. Also, this Paul King guy is a low-key master in the making. There are few adult filmmakers out there who couldn't learn something from how seem this film sparks from riffing on Chaplin to commenting on the beauty of basic human decency from modern times to modern times without skipping a beat. Both sides smashed together with 
globs of delicious marmalade. Oscars for everybody, a Nobel Peace Prize for Hugh Grant. See this immediately. Yes, it probably helps to have seen the wonderful but admittedly inferior first installment before you go, but, like, that's not much of a chore. The other movies of 2018 have their work cut out for them. David Ehrlich. David Ehrlich. He has he has a glowing spark of joy in his heart, is what I'm saying. Yeah. I need to see Magic Mike XXL now to to see if it's at that yeah, level right? of delight. <laughs> it's, it's, that's what it says. Is uh it's the the Magic Mike is the Paddington two of stripper movies. <laughs> Well, I've got another five star by Lauren, who has this to say. People who don't cry over Paddington are the weaker species and will be taken by natural selection. Ah, may they be so lucky. They might be taken. Might be eaten by, by a bear. By lava flow. By a revenant. Be no, revenant by, bear. by the revenant bear. But it'll be wearing a little red hat. <laughs> <laughs> somebody could somebody have done that like in my head canon i would like to see the revenant bear wearing a giant blue coat and a red hat still going after leonardo dicaprio oh, that is awful or oh the revenant God. bear walking around london <laughs> just eating <laughs> marmalade sandwiches <laughs> just screaming so just, at just, people no just being being as nice as just being, but like that yeah. size i'd love to see that oh, that's awesome thanks letterboxd I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.